Hi there, just published my uh, how-to self-help research guide about publishing your own music and it turns out to be wonderfully easy and simple. You just open up a, an account with the US Copyright Office, that's, that's what you do. And then you just listen to the rest of my other podcasts and then you'll be fine. Anyway. We did some legal AF a little earlier, and uh, Cohen and Parkland father confront Diaper Don and Mag over disturbing moves. Um, this is other headlines uh, or other YouTube things. Humanity came from the civilization of the Atlanteans in the Arctic, delving to the enigmatic theory that suggests humanity's roots might trace back to an ancient civilization of Atlanteans residing in the Arctic. <clears throat> okay. Well, that sounds pretty good. Did you know that there is a hidden message Maybe in like the ancient Egyptian TV symbol, together. the Eye of Horus? Despite existing TV. over 3,500 years ago, the ancient Egyptian... Following the latest scientific achievements, scientists began to unravel the long-standing mystery of the origins of our civilization, what we know, the discoveries in the field of geology and paleontology, and the on-site study of folklore of various peoples helped scientists to locate not only the primordial mother country of today's human race, but the original motherland of our ancestors, the Aryans, which were to be referred later as the Rockets. The well-known scientist and explorer Kandaiba raises the above and other issues in his books. Kandaiba is also the president of the World Association of Professional Hypnotists. He spent many years exploring various parts of the world, taking part in expeditions across the Atlantic and the Arctic. Eventually, he produced a sensational theory by comparing sorted pieces of information. His theory seems capable of defying some dogmas that look firmly implanted in the world of the science. During an expedition in the Atlantic, Kandaiba learned from experience that Atlantis was not located in the part of the ocean quite contrary to the land described by Plato in detail. Unlike other scientists who came in, Kandaiba continued his quest. He offered to speak to Bias in the Vedas, one of the most ancient historical chronicles. Many experts in religious writings are inclined to view the Vedic myths as the oldest and most objective source of information. The sacred Hindu writings are penned in a peculiar poetic manner, which at times makes a snaky line between truth and fantasy disappear. However, there is a direct reference to the primordial motherland of the human race in the Vedas. For example, the sacred book of Rig Veda contains the story of a great civilization that existed 18 million years ago on the continent Aryana. The location of the continent could easily be identified with the help of Hindu sacred writings. According to them, the city of Arka, a capital of the United Empire, was situated beneath the polar star, that is on the territory of the present-day Arctic. According to the ancient Vedic writings, the first man was called Ori. The name of the first man was used not only for naming both the ancient continent and the Aryans, the prehistoric people. Our ancestors were head and shoulders in achievements in comparison with the ancients. The Aryans professed monotheism, not unlike the present-day Christians. They accepted the doctrine of the trinity of the union of three persons, Father, Son and the Holy Ghost, and one Godhead. Some scientists showed a fair share of skepticism with regard to the writings. They even called them a fake because that philosophy of life resembled the Christian religion a great deal. However, the supporters of the theory 
were capable of firing back and defend it. The well-known researcher of Slavic mythology and author of numerous books, Asaph, could find evidence to show that all the peoples had a similar concept of the world, yet the ancient faith eroded over the ages. Asaph found evidence after running a comparative analysis of the myth of our direct ancestors. The wooden tablets that were found recently in the territory of present-day Russia constitute irrefutable evidence of monotheism among our ancestors. At the very beginning, our ancestors worshipped Godhead in three hypostates. Other deities came to life later. At the first stage of the myth, they acted as mere assistants to the Creator. The sources of the Slavic wooden tablets are thought to be much older than the Hindu Vedas. Both of them contain information that looks miraculously identical. On the other hand, the slaves could have communicated with the ancient Indians only if the both peoples had shared the motherland. According to the Vedic writings, the ancient civilization populated the whole continent. It was a single state, divided into principalities and governed by a sole ruler. The residence of a ruler was located in the city of Harkar, the capital of the empire. It is easy to see where the city was situated by using the celestial map. The city was lying right under the polar star. According to the Vedas, the empire was free from wars and conflicts because the people believed in the god and followed his commandments that were very much akin to those in the Bible. The Orients were building lots of cities all across the land. They had a good knowledge of astronomy and medicine. All temples were all Saudis's observation. The Orients possessed many other secrets that were lost after the civilization ceased to exist. These days we only have bits and pieces of some moth-eaten legends dating back to prehistoric times. Those legends say about big and mighty ships calling on other parts of the world populated by savages. The ships carried tall strangers who had astronomical and astrological calendars and expertise in pottery and metallurgy. Those were legends about the great civilization of the Atlanteans, which was actually situated in the Arctic. Perhaps some translators are to blame for humankind. Great misunderstanding. The translators misled scientists when they wrote Atlantis in lieu of Arctis. So the Vedas have a detailed account of the tragic demise of the Arctic civilization. Legend has it that God advised the high priest of Arca of the incoming destruction of the civilization as the priest was worshipping and the temple on a mountain. It was revealed to the priest that the fertile land of the empire would be covered with ice. After freezing temperatures, supersedes the form climate. The priest relays the revelation to the people and urged them to move for other parts of the world. But the people ignored God's warning and the priest's requests. The residents of the tiny principalities decided to stay and fight for their lives till the end. As a result, many of them were killed by hunger and extremely low temperatures. The Vedas maintain the last people left the Arctic three million years ago. The modern geological research contains evidence to confirm the data. In reality, complete icing of the Arctic took place about three million years ago. Different peoples of the Arctic region still have numerous stories about the strangers coming from the land stuck in between the ice. The Second American Civil War is going to make the Israel-Hamas conflict look like child's play. And according to my trusted military contacts, growing your own food, preparing those bug-out bags, and stockpiling survival gear is not going to prepare you for what's about to happen. My name's Teddy Daniels. You may have seen me with Tucker Carlson or on several other trusted news sources. I'm a military. <laughs> coming from the land stuck in between the ice. There is some evidence of this hypothesis in some Slavic myths. For example, the myth of the winter that lasted several years. 
some scientists maintain that myth of the building of the Tower of Babel is nothing else but an account of the collapse of the Arctic civilization. Scientists were fortunate to obtain soil samples at a depth corresponding to some 20 million years. The soil samples extracted from a depth that equaled 18 million years were not only prisoners, they also contained a few fragments of plants, for example a piece of grapevine, evidence to support the hypothesis featuring warm and fertile lands in the prehistoric Arctic. Explorers of the Arctic claim it is impossible to find any signs of civilization buried under the layer of ice that is one kilometer thick. A new theory was put forth. It featured settlers from the Arctic forming a new civilization. For many years, there was no evidence to prove the theory. The archaeologists came across sensational finds in our time in the Ural Mountains. Having excavated and reconstructed some of the buildings on the excavation site, scientists arrived at the conclusion that a huge city used to sit near the eastern slopes of the Ural. The city had temples and palaces and astronomical observations. Painstaking comparative analysis on the basis of the Vedic writings enabled scientists to maintain that the city of the Urals was one of the last strongholds of the Aryan civilization. Historians and archaeologists stressed the level of knowledge of astronomy and architecture displayed by those who planned and built the city in, in the mountains. None of the people who lived in the Urals at that time knew much about astronomy and architecture, Recently. as for the layout of the city is resembled very much that of the city of Arthur which lay under the polar star. According to the legends of the Middle East, the prophet Zoroaster came down from the territory of the present-day Urals. The prophet allegedly drew from the bits and pieces of the ancient Vedic doctrines while devising a new religion that dominated in the Middle East for many years. Archaeologists found out that the residents fled Arkheim about 3500 years ago, the time of the eruption of the Santorin volcano. The Aryans had to run away from the cold weather after the climate in the Urals started to change. The site of the city of Arkheim was discovered by Professor Dinovic in 1987. It was declared a National Historic Reserve. Four years later, Arkheim is one of the few existing monuments that remind us of our distant ancestors. In terms of the major religions of the world, we all know about Christianity and Islam, Hinduism and Buddhism. These are traditions that have shaped our world to significant Fucking degrees mad. and which still have billions of followers worldwide. But one religion that isn't as large today but might still represent one of the most influential and important religious traditions in history is Zoroastrianism being associated primarily with Iran and Central Asia and serving essentially as the state religion for some of the great Persian empires, Zoroastrianism also probably had a major influence on certain key features of the Abrahamic faith. Many have of course heard about Zoroastrianism, but knowledge about the details of this religion is often very limited and shallow. Uh, people will maybe know that this is the religion that Freddie Mercury belonged to, or that it is a religion that has an essentially dualistic worldview, uh, concerned with the fight of, uh, of good against evil, light against darkness. Now, this is all true, but there's so much of Zoroastrianism that most people aren't aware of. A long history of development with unique teachings that have, of course, evolved and changed over the centuries and millennia, but the core of which stretches back far into antiquity to some of the earliest religious literature in the history of the world. So in this episode, let's spend some time and dive deep into the fascinating and very important religion of Zoroastrianism. 
veteran viewers will perhaps be aware that I have already made an episode like this about Zoroastrianism way back in the very early days of this channel. And while there's not necessarily anything wrong about that episode or anything that I think is, is you know, bad that I would change necessarily as such, oh, come on. Um, the production value oh, of this geez. channel, the videos here, has significantly increased and gotten better since then. And I feel like an important topic like Zoroastrianism deserves a video that is uh, more pleasing to look at and listen to. <laughs> Uh, you know, couple that with the fact mm -hmm. that both uh, research on this topic generally and my own knowledge of this subject has also significantly increased and, and, and developed over the years since that video. So for both of these reasons, I felt that it was uh, necessary, that it was uh, appropriate to do a, another video about Zoroastrianism that goes even deeper and takes into account all these uh, nuances and, and new understandings and more complex aspects of its history and development and teachings. Zoroastrianism is a very old religion. In terms of an organized religion, so to say, it could be considered one of the oldest in the world. And many indeed consider it the first monotheistic religion in history. There are caveats to this, especially the latter statement, as we will see, but for sure it is a tradition that stretches back very far into the past. But for this reason, it has, of course, evolved and changed over the millennia, too, giving rise to different and sometimes competing interpretations of its theology, literature, and practices. Most of the text of the Zoroastrian religion was written down or codified for the first time during the Sasanian Empire, around the middle of the first millennium of the although these texts had been orally transmitted for a long time before that. It is also around this time, probably in relation to this, that some of the core characteristics of the religion's teachings that we are familiar with became more formally organized and established, a kind of quote-unquote orthodoxy, if you will. What I mean to point out with this is that our common understanding of Zoroastrian belief and practice is often primarily based on these developments during the Sasanian Empire, these codified and, and sort of official teachings that were set down at this particular period in time. Thus, the teachings that had been established by them is the lens through which much older texts and aspects of the religion, such as the Gothas, are interpreted by most people. In any case, the basic features of Zoroastrianism, as most people know it, is that it is some kind of combination between a monotheistic faith with a dualistic cosmology. The worldview of Zoroastrianism is that of a clear cosmological dualism between the forces of good and evil, between light and darkness often represented by the forces of Ahura Mazda on the one hand, and Angra Mainyu on the other, or between Asha and Druj. We'll return to these terms and concepts later, but this also means that Zoroastrianism is a heavily ethical religion, concerned with the individual's ethical actions in this world, so living according to the principles of good thoughts, good words, and good deeds to promote the forces of Asha, of order and goodness in the world and also promising an afterlife of pleasure or punishment depending on how the person acted during their lifetime. These characteristics hey, like of the religion it. are largely true, although some may need to be nuanced a little bit. But we need to go a little deeper, and from different perspectives, to get a proper understanding of the complexities of this tradition. I think it might serve as well to, as we often do, do this in a chronological order. So, Ethics. with that said, what is the origins or early developments of Zoroastrianism? Well, at the core of Zoroastrian ritual and belief are a set of writings, a group of poems or songs called the Gathas. 
this, for all intents and purposes, is considered the oldest source and beginning of Zoroastrianism in some way. The Gathas serve as the basis for much of the core teachings of the religion and as an important part of ritual and practical life for Zoroastrians to this day. The Gathas are ascribed to an ancient figure called Zarathustra, sometimes referred to in Greek as Zoroaster a poet and sage who is considered the original founder, quote-unquote, of Zoroastrianism. Depending on who you ask, Zarathustra is described as a prophet, a poet, sage, a philosopher, or perhaps all of the above, but all agree that if he is a historical person, he is indeed a core figure for the formation and origins of the religion. Scholars both within and outside the Zoroastrian tradition greatly disagree on dating the life of Zarathustra and the Gathas, some placing him at a very early date around the middle of the 2nd millennium BC, while others place his life in the middle of the 1st millennium BC, so around the year 500 BC or so, at the very early days of the Achaemenid Empire. Based on the linguistic features of the Gothas themselves, the majority of scholars today, I would say, and I do tend to agree with them, favors the earlier date, thus placing the life of Zarathustra sometime around the year 1500 BC, give or take. This makes his poems or songs, the Gathas, roughly contemporary with the composition of the Rig Veda in the Vedic culture in India, making it some of the oldest religious and philosophical literature in the history of the world. And indeed, this connection is important in other ways too, because the context of early Zoroastrianism is very much connected to the Vedic culture in India. The Indo-Aryan language group that migrated into northern India, which became central to the formation of quote-unquote Hinduism or the Vedic culture, and the Proto-Iranians that migrated to the west share a common origin, both linguistic. Yeah, Iranians are Zoroastrian. And we can see this in the similarity of many terms and concepts shared between Zoroastrianism and Indic religion, such as words like Devas, uh, Ashura versus Ahura, uh, Hauma and Soma, etc. So we should imagine Zarathustra growing up and living in a society not unlike that of the Vedic culture in India. And when we read the Gathas, for instance, I think it's much more fruitful to do that through this particular lens rather than reading it through a, more of an Abrahamic to lens. To play that on my podcast. To do today. While we aren't sure about much of Zarathustra's life at all, all we have to go on are the many later legends as well as clues and the Gathas themselves, it's widely argued that he was from what is today northeastern Iran. The Gathas are composed in a language referred to as Old Avestan. And the poems uses imagery and metaphors that point to a society of mobile pastoralism, as there are many references to horses and livestock, including the important notion of the so-called soul of the cow as some kind of cosmic concept. The soul of the cow in the Gathas represents the soul of the world in some way, and Zarathustra talks about the shepherd as an ideal person that takes care of the livestock. In a similar way, the good person is someone who takes care of the soul of the cow, that is, nature itself in the world at large, as a shepherd would take care of his animals. So, Zarathustra figured in a mobile pastoral society with a religious tradition that was probably strongly related to the Vedic one, with a heavy focus on ritual and probably things like sacrifices and offerings, and an essentially polytheistic theology with many different gods or deities. Indeed, it seems that this culture shared certain gods with its neighbors in India, such as Indra and Bayu, among others. Although it's also interesting to consider that the terms for the gods are sort of reversed. 
So the good gods in India, in the Indicomplet, are referred to as the Devas, whereas the Ahuras are the bad gods. In the uh, Iranian context, it's it's reversed. So here, the Ahuras are the good gods, whereas the Devas, as we'll see, are a term that refers to evil spirits, or evil gods. So in that way, they're reversed. But we can see still that this uh, religious tradition was shared. They, they share a common ancestry, a common origin, and are very much so like themselves being Later good legends ones. about Zarathustra <laughs> tell of how he was a priest of this older religion. Thus, he would have been in charge of performing rites and other related things. But as he traveled around the region, he was struck by the violence and unethical behavior of many of the people. Something was wrong, but he wasn't quite sure what it was or how to solve it. This is one of the key themes that we find in the Gothas when we read these texts are attributed to Zarathustra. He's very much concerned with, with, with ethics and pointing out how leaders and people around the world, what was his world, which was, you know, Iran at that time. Maybe I should convert uh, to Zoroastrianism. Evil, <laughs> uh, you know, violent, all these things. It's a very common theme in these texts. But then something very dramatic happened, which would change his life, and if it is a historical event, change the course of the world. I decided what religion I'd be. It is said that during a spring festival, where he might have been working in his function as priest, he went down to the river to Where fetch some water. But as he was stepping out of the water, he suddenly had an intense vision of light. Then, a shining being referred to as Bohumana, good purpose, spoke to him. Zarathustra was given a kind of revelation, where the truths about reality and its working was revealed to him just as they are. And at the center of this revelation was a quite radical concept. Rather than the more polytheistic religion that he was taught in, it was revealed to him that there is only one creative absolute force and source in reality called Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda is often translated as the wise lord or the lord of wisdom and represents one of the key concepts in Zoroastrianism. Ahura Mazda, later often written as Ormald, is the creative force behind all existence, at least everything good and harmonious in the world. Especially later, Ahura Mazda is often seen as somewhat equivalent to the monotheistic god, the sole creator and sustainer of the world. But it isn't entirely clear just how it should be conceived in these earliest sources. Some translators and scholars today, favoring a more quote-unquote philosophical interpretation of the goddess and the teachings of Zarathustra, such as Ashkdalian, who recently published a translation of the Gathas into Swedish, choose to translate Ahura Mazda as something like the High Wisdom, thus giving it a more abstract philosophical ring compared to the more theological interpretations of Ahura Mazda as a uh, god in the more conventional sense that seems to have become the norm later on. Whether or not this story about Zarathustra's revelation on the riverbank is historically true or not, it serves as a popular legend about his life that also legitimizes his role as a kind of enlightened sage. But scholars are unsure of just how to categorize Zarathustra. It used to be popular to refer to him as a prophet, thus the prophet of Zoroastrianism, similar to enlightened Muhammad sage. being the prophet and founder of Islam. 
indeed many Muslim scholars in history, also chose to look at Zarathustra precisely as one of the many prophets sent by God mentioned in the Quran, also thus legitimizing praising the Zoroastrians under the category of the people of the book. And it's still popular today to talk about him in such a way. But this might be a bit anachronistic in a way, reading his life through an Abrahamic lens, so to say. Perhaps he can better be compared to the rishis or sages of ancient India that originated the Vedas. Some, as we saw, also choose to categorize him as a philosopher, and this can have a significant impact on how we read the Gathas. I think what we can be most safe in claiming is that he was a poet, or a singer maybe. After all, the one direct, probably direct source that we have of him is the Gothas themselves, a collection of poem songs. So clearly he was some kind of sage poet, blessed with unique insight into the workings of reality and the universe. There is a term in Old Avestan, which is used uh, self-referentially in the Gothas themselves, called a mantram. This means something like a person that uses words like poetry to convey deep existential truths with clarity. I think this, if anything, is perhaps what we can most surely ascribe to Zarathustra, not, not least because it is a term that he seemingly uses for himself, too. The insight that Zarathustra was given about reality, whether through the famous story at the riverbank or not, is what he expresses in the Gathas, and which serves as some of the most key aspects of Zoroastrian thought and belief. The Gathas also serve as the core of the wider corpus of Zoroastrian sacred scriptures, known as the Avesta, which, Ouch. aside from the Gothas, include many other texts, such as the Yashts, or hymns to divine powers, Vendidas, the Visperad, among many other texts, uh, and these texts are all written in a language group, or uh, groups known as Old Avestan, which is from roughly 1500 to 1000 BC, and Young Avestan, which is from 1000 BC to around 500 BC. In general, these Zoroastrian scriptures are very varied, and new ones appeared as late as the Islamic period, around the 8th to 9th centuries AD. But the Avesta, the oldest and most important collection of sacred scriptures, which includes the Gothas, make up what we could consider the, the, the core of the tradition, and it was only transmitted orally until the first few centuries AD. While we should remember that Zoroastrianism, just like any religion, is a tradition that changed and evolved over the centuries and millennia. So the religion practiced by Darius, the Achaemenid emperor, uh, was quite different in many ways from the religion uh, practiced by the Sasanian Empire a few centuries later. Still, if we look at these oldest sources and these texts, we might be able to reconstruct a kind of a core uh, set of teachings and characteristics that are true, for the most part at least, across the board, uh, for most of Zoroastrian history. So, with this in mind, what can we say about the teachings of Zoroastrianism? I think we can begin by looking at the scriptures themselves. In fact, the very opening of the first Gatha, or song, ascribed to Zarathustra, where he says, quote, In reverence for him with hands outstretched, at first I entreat you all, O Ahura Mazda, for the actions of support of the Spirit Holy through truth, or Asha, to whom you may gratify the intellect of good thought and the soul of the cow. I approach soul you with cow. good thought, O Mazda Ahura, so that you may grant me the blessings of the two existences, the material and that of thought, the blessings emanating from truth with which you can put your supporters in comfort. I extol you as ever before, O truth, Asha, and good thought, Buhomana, 
and Mazda Ahura for all of whom right-mindedness increases also unfading power. May you come to my calls for support. Inspired by good thoughts and being a witness for Mazda Ahura, I have in mind one soul for his commendation by my song, as well as the rewards for his actions. For as long as I can and I am able, I shall look out in my search for truth. Already in this opening of the Gathas, recited as a key part of the Zoroastrian liturgy, or Yasna, we already have some clues to the key teachings of the religion. First of all, there is only one creative force or god in reality, Ahura Mazda, the lord of wisdom, who is called upon constantly in the text. He is the source of all good, all light, all creation and wisdom. This is why many have referred to Zoroastrianism as essentially monotheistic, or even the first monotheistic religion in the world. But things are also a lot more complicated than that, as we will see. Secondly, what lies at the very core of the Zoroastrian scriptures and teachings is essentially an ethical message. This is the key message that is hammered home again and again. Humans have free will, and there is a very clear idea of right and wrong, of good and evil. Indeed, inherent in this ethical message is a very strong dualism. This is not the mind-body dualism of Descartes or the horizontal dualism of certain strands of Platonism or, say, Christianity, but rather a vertical dualism. All of created reality is divided into truth and falsehood, into right and wrong, light and darkness. Both of the two worlds mentioned in the quote above, that of material and that of thought, are included in this dualism. So it's not a matter versus spirit situation as in Christianity, for example. On the one side, there is Asha, a concept meaning truth, or that which is right, real, or things like order and harmony. This can be compared to the Vedic idea Asha. of Gita, or perhaps even Maat in ancient Egyptian religion. The creation of Ahura Mazda is essentially good, beautiful, and harmonious. It is perfect, because Ahura Mazda himself is perfect and good. Asha, or truth, is the principle of that goodness and order in the world the way things are supposed to be, according to the wisdom of Ahura Mazda. But on the other side of the coin, there is also druj, which means the lie or deception. This is the very opposite of Asha, and it is conceived, at least in later Zoroastrianism, as a force that has been introduced to the perfect creation of Ahura Mazda from the outside, so to say. And the human being and all of creation is caught in this place that contains both good, the domain of Ahura Mazda and, and Asha, and evil, that of Druj and its forces. So our world of creation contains both good and evil, at least in this current state. These forces or concepts are often also personified in different ways, especially as we get into the younger Avesta and later Zoroastrian writings. In the Gothas themselves, it isn't always entirely clear how we should think of these concepts. Some readings by scholars such as John Kellens and the aforementioned Ashtalian see much of these things as simply uh, psychological and internal concepts and workings within the human person. The creation of Ahura Mazda is essentially good in its totality, but within the human soul there exist the inclinations in two directions. On the one hand, there is spenta mainyu, often translated as beneficent inspiration or beneficent spirit which leads you Spent to work for the benefit of Asha and goodness, and almost as a kind of faculty of Ahura Mazda. And on the other hand, there is Angra Mainyu, the destructive spirit, 
that inclines to evil, deception, and destruction. However, this oldest text should be interpreted, later Zoroastrian writings and teachings have a more cosmological perspective on this dualism. Ahura Mazda is the one creator god of the cosmos whose creation is perfect and good. And Angra Mainyu becomes a kind of personified spirit himself as the opposite of Ahura Mazda, the force in reality that has infiltrated the perfect creation of Ahura Mazda to spread druj, lies and deception, things like violence, death and decay. So the world we live in today is one in which both of these forces, Asha and Druj, represented to some degree by Ahura Mazda and Angra Mainyu respectively, are at work simultaneously. And it is our work, our job as human beings, to choose the path of Asha, of truth and order, and to dispel the darkness of Druj from the world. In the Gathas, Zarathustra talks a lot about the shepherd as a kind of ideal person, one who takes care of the livestock and of nature, as the image of the person who follows the path of Asha. This he compares to people who instead are misled by the devas, the evil gods or deities, to seek power, money, or destroy the world in different ways through violence. So you see what I mean when I say that the Zoroastrian message is an essentially ethical one. This fight between good and evil, between truth and deception, Asha and Druj, is the very core of the religion and the Avestan scriptures. And the human being promotes Asha partly through performing the Zoroastrian rituals, of course, such as the Yasna liturgy or the daily prayers, etc. But on a more personal, practical level, this is done by adhering to the main, you could say the main mantra or instruction that people are to follow. Humata, Huchta, Vareshta means good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. It's just like in Buddhism. It's a pretty neat and Humata. simple instruction, but Humata this also, of course, requires Arishta. knowing what makes up good deeds, for instance, by being able to identify which aspects of the world are part of the good creation of Aura and which are the result of Anga Mainyu. So, there are certain things in the world that are seen as pure and sacred, such as fire and running water, that must not be defiled in any way. At the same time, there are certain things in the world, like some animals seen as impure or evil, this includes snakes and frogs and yes. things like this, and it is sort of um, encouraged by knowing what makes up good deeds, for Humata, instance, by being able to identify Hukta. which aspects of the world are part of the good creation of Ahura Mazda, action, but... Hukta, sounds like Husha, that means so be it. Varishta. Humata is good thoughts. Hukta is good words. Havarishta is good deeds. Every day. This also, of course, requires knowing what makes up good deeds, for instance, by being able to identify which aspects of the world are part of the good creation of Ahura Mazda and which are the result of Anga Mainyu. So, there are certain things in the world that are seen as pure and sacred, such as fire and running water, that must not be defiled in any way. At the same time, there are certain things in the world, like some animals seen as impure or evil, this includes snakes and frogs and things like this, and it is sort of um, encouraged that you are supposed to kill these uh, animals of evil to promote Asha in the world. 
The goal of the Zoroastrian is thus to live his or her life in accordance with Asha or truth, to devote themselves to Ahura Mazda, the Lord of Wisdom or High Wisdom, and to worship him and the goodness that he represents in thought, speech, and action. The person who has accomplished this, who adheres to Asha in their life, is known as an Ashavan, thus representing this ultimate goal of the human being. This stands in contrast to the Dregvan, the follower of Druj, who spreads evil and falsehood in the world. I don't think we're supposed to eat pigs they're fucking evil. I replied, firstly, I am Zarathustra, a veritable opponent of the evildoer, but a powerful friend of the good am I. So long as I can sing my songs of praise for thee, O Mazda, so long shall I strive to enlighten and awaken all to the realization of thy eternal dominion. And this also figures into the large cosmogonical and eschatological Mazda. So long shall I strive to enlighten and awaken all to the realization of thy eternal dominion. But a powerful friend of the good. This also figures into the large cosmogonical and eschatological picture as well, especially if we take into account later Zoroastrian writings too, such as the important and fascinating Vidyadad. This is a young Avestan text from, well, again, from around 1100 to 500 BC. Here, there's a clear account of sacred history that is presented. It begins with the creation of the world by Ahura Mazda as a perfect creation. This uh, wonderful situation lasts for a while, often sometimes considered 6,000 years, before the evil spirit, Angra Mainyu, sort of infiltrates or infects this perfect world, spreading druj and creating the situation that we have now, a world of both good and evil. This fight between good and evil continues, but reaches a kind of turning point with the life and you could say, mission of Zarathustra himself and the establishment of Zoroastrian rituals and worldview that sort of starts the process of Asha's victory over Druj, the gradual victory of light over darkness. In the end, and connected with the arrival of a savior figure called the Seoshant, the world will be revitalized at last, an event or concept called Freshukareti. This word is connected, as you can probably hear, with the English word fresh. And we can also kind of imagine it as the at last, an event or concept called. Wait, 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 wait. Like the, the coming of a wave? Darkness. In the end, and connected with the arrival of a savior figure called the Seoshant, the world will be revitalized at last, an event or concept called Freshukareti. This word is connected, as you can probably hear, with the English word fresh. And we can kind of imagine it as the uh, world becoming fresh again. The uh, darkness of Angra Mainyu and Druj finally being dispelled, and the creation of Ahura Mazda once again being able to be what it was from the beginning, a perfect world of harmony and order. Perfect At this juncture, world. the Zoroastrian scriptures also imagine, because of the ethical nature, of course, that the individual human being will also face a kind of retribution here. Mm. After the world is redeemed, every human being will be judged based on their actions in life. This was quite unique at this time. Every ethical judged. actions affect our afterlife directly, rather than things like status or other features that were more common in other traditions, so including the ancient Iranian religion. The Ashavan, the person who has followed and promoted Asha in their life, will live a pleasant life in the company of Ahura Mazda in this perfect world. Whereas the Dregvan, who promoted deception and evil in the world, will be punished and face a very unpleasant afterlife Snake. in a place called the House of Lies. Hmm. It is 
Look at these humans just walking past the chance wow, to save nearly seven hundred fifty dollars. Hey, you! Look here! Look at this! What it is thought that at this point the dead person will be forced to walk across a bridge. On the other side is paradise for all intents and purposes. But on the bottom below the bridge is the house of lies, what can essentially be considered hell. Hell. For the Ashavan or righteous person, this bridge will be very wide and easy to cross. But for a quote-unquote bad person, the bridge will contract to be as thin as the edge of a blade, making it almost impossible to cross and causing the person to basically inevitably fall down into eternal punishment. Zarathustra says, quote, The Kalpans, priests, and the Kavis, so worldly leaders, have tyrannized over humanity. Their evil actions are destructive of life. Verily, the conscience of such a one shall torment his soul. And thus, when they shall come to the bridge of judgment, their abode for endless ages shall be in the house of the lie. Hmm. For those of you that are familiar with the Abrahamic faiths, a lot of this will, of course, feel right at home, because these uh, features are basically identical to certain eschatological beliefs in religions like, particularly in, in Islam and Christianity. Hmm. And we'll return to these similarities and possible connections uh, later on in the episode, too. At this point, I think it is also worthwhile to discuss more in detail the uh, theology at play here, because it can be a little complicated. Like we said, Zoroastrianism is often called the first monotheistic religion in the world. And this isn't without reason. Indeed, as we saw, the Gathas and Avestan scriptures consider Ahura Mazda to be the one creator of the world. As far as we consider a god, with a capital G, Ahura Mazda is it, and no one compares with him. But things aren't really this simple and neat, especially if we try to look at it and define monotheism through the lens of the Abrahamic religions and the kind of monotheism that we find in, say, Judaism or Islam. First of all, we have already been introduced to the concept of Angra Mainyu, the evil spirit that stands on the, say, the opposite end of Ahura Mazda, the kind of uh, spirit of darkness and evil. Doesn't this kind of paint the picture of two gods with opposing qualities? The relationship between Angra Mainyu and Ahura Mazda changed according to different theologies and developments across the centuries and millennia, and sometimes they do indeed seem to be equal in some ways, such as with the so-called Zervanite movement during the Sasanian Empire, when the two basically became seen as two sons of an even higher divine figure called Zervan or Time. On the other hand, in the Gothas themselves, one could interpret it in a very different way, where Ahura Mazda is the one god, and Angra Mainyu is only a personification of some other force that exists in creation, either ontologically or simply in the human psyche. While Ahura Mazda is the one creator god and the highest lord in reality, on his side we also find other divine forces or concepts such as the Amesha Spentas and the Yazadas. The Amesha Spentas, the Holy Immortals, is a concept that we find already in the Gothas themselves, even though this term isn't used there. And here, they appear as certain, you could say, attributes or manifestations, perhaps to use philosophical language, you can see them as emanations of Ahura Mazda, that are manifested in the world and in human actions in different ways. The scholar Jenny Rose has, quote, the Gothas introduced the notion that the Ashavan should further certain qualities besides Asha that are associated with promoting the best existence. This leads to the consideration that these may be separate entities, which, along with other abstract forces found in the Gothas, 
form part of a complex web of interrelationships with Ahura Mazda. So these Amesha Spentas are qualities of Ahura Mazda that should be embodied by the person as part of that goodness and wisdom that make up God and his creation. In the Gathas, there is no set number for these Amesha Spentas, but in later writings they are defined as seven. Asha, or truth, is one of them, as is Spenta Mainyu, which we mentioned earlier, that is uh, translated as uh, beneficent inspiration or beneficent spirit. There is Bogumana, good thought or good purpose. There is Kshatra Vairiya, dominion. Armaiti, holy devotion or love. There is Haurvatat, wholeness or perfection. And Ameritat, or immortality. While in the Gothas themselves, these can be read as emanations or aspects of Ahura Mazda in some way, in later periods they often became seen as figures or spirits in themselves. Spenta Mainyu was usually identified outright with Ahura Mazda himself, whereas the rest were often individual divine entities that were uh, also often the object of worship in different ways. Each of them would also be associated with certain aspects of the natural world or other abstract concepts, so that um, Asha, for instance, was associated with fire, and uh, devotion to this Amesha Spenta Asha was through fire, so to say. This can be a pretty complicated idea and definitely complicates the theology, especially if we're looking for a more strict monotheism in the Abrahamic sense. And furthermore, these Amesha Spentas, and even Ahura Mazda himself, was also seen as part of a wider group of beings called the Yazatas, which literally means those worthy of worship. The Yazadas are divine beings that can be worshipped, and also include other popular divine entities such as Mithra and Anahita, among others. So what's going on here? If there are multiple gods that are worshipped, what role does Ahura Mazda actually play? And can we then actually call this a monotheism? Well, this is pretty complicated as you can see. I'm usually careful to use terms like monotheism because it can become quite anachronistic to use it in this way and thus project certain expectations from a completely different context onto something that really doesn't fit. For sure, the Yazadas were the object of worship for Zoroastrians throughout history, but not everyone wants to call them gods, necessarily. Some have referred to them as something akin to angels in the Abrahamic uh, situation. Indeed, the term Yazada seems to be used for a wide array of different things, such as um, everything from healing plants to fravashis too, a concept that we will return to later. So Yazadas can mean a broader category of things that are worthy of worship, which can include um, the natural things, but also uh, the Amesha Spentas, and it can also sometimes even include Ahura Mazda himself, although he is usually sort of uh, considered as above or transcendent of all these other categories. Some might perhaps be tempted to use a term like Henotheism to describe it, where um, multiple gods are recognized as existing, but only one god being exalted and worshipped okay. at the sort of highest god in existence. But again, I think this is a sort of anachronistic way of looking at it, it's kind of to fit something into our preconceived categories and boxes, whereas this is uh, it's more complicated than that, right? This is a completely different uh, way of, of looking at the relationship between these different divine beings and how the cosmos functions in that way. I think uh, while it can be helpful to use these terms and to discuss them like we're now monotheism or henotheism or whatever you want to have it, um, at the end of the day, the best way to do this is simply to look at it for what it is, right? You look at this as a unique case in itself. And the Zoroastrian 
physiology is unique, right? They have this high gall, this uh, somewhat monotheistic idea, like Paramahansa is one god, but there are other divine beings too. And it's not like Ahura Mazda is one among the same category of divine beings, and that he is just exalted above the other, as in other pantheisms perhaps. Um, Ahura Mazda seems to be a sort of a category of his own completely. He is, he is God with a capital G, whereas the others are divine beings, maybe not even gods. Some, many people will not even want to call them gods, they call them angels or simply uh, divine beings. Or in the case of scholars in, in the textbooks, they will just use the, the, uh, this, the term yazanas, which I think is pretty wise because it, it, it avoids many of these problems that we run into um, by using terms like gods or deities. Uh, so maybe we should do that too, simply call them for what they are, which is yazanas, and Mazda is a sort of own category. I don't know, it's, it's a complicated situation, but I think that's worth um, keeping in mind all of these tasks. Yazanas. Yeah, like I said, the Yazadas are an integral part of the religion since the earliest period and significantly nuances our understanding and reminds us not to oversimplify based on our preconceived categories. It should be pointed out also that some have argued that the idea of the Yazadas and the uh, Ameshaspentas, at least as separate entities, is a later invention of the religion that is not present in the Gothas themselves, but that of course isn't for us to decide here. What we should remember is that the teachings of the religion, including this topic, changed and evolved over time, making it hard to pin it down into a set doctrine, so to say, at least until much later in history. So, in summary, Zoroastrianism, at least in the Avesta scriptures, teaches that there is a cosmic drama. Created reality is a vertical dualism, divided between the two forces. On the one hand, there is Pasha, ruled over by the one good god, Ahura Mazda, and represented by his Kameshaspentas and the various Yazadas. And on the other hand, there is Druj, deception, ruled over by Anga Mainyu, and represented by him and the other evil gods or spirits referred to as Devas. The role of the human being is to worship Ahura Mazda and to become an Ashaman, one who follows and spreads Asha through ritual action and adhering to the principles of good thoughts good words and good deeds. By doing so, we are gradually removing the stain of darkness and evil from the world until we reach Freshukarity, when the world will once again be perfect and where human beings will be resurrected, judged based on their actions, mm -hmm. and then spend the rest of eternity in either pain or pleasure. This, in essence, with some clarifications and additions from later institutionalized theology, can be seen as what Jenny Ross refers to as the Avestan worldview, which lies at the center of Zoroastrianism. Introducing the FilterSorb Whole House Water Conditioner, a complete home water filtration and conditioning system by Purigen Water. Propagating bamboo and aloe. Calcium and magnesium are healthy minerals found in your home's water supply. However, when these ions are heated, they can wreak havoc. Zarathustra, the probable author of the Gothas and the founder of Zoroastrianism, proved to be a very influential figure in the history of religion and philosophy. 
perhaps one of the most significant in all of history. But during his lifetime, this wasn't necessarily the case at all. We find references in the Gothas to the idea that he was shunned and rejected by people of eastern Iran as he traveled around. But he did find one supporter in the ruler of Ishtasba and his queen, Hutausa, who became his patient and seemed to have adapted his religious reform. Whatever was the case, when other historical records start showing up around a millennium later, after Andrathus Salif, it becomes clear that his writings and teachings had become very widespread across greater Iran. While we should be careful to think about it as a unified quote-unquote religion as we think of it today, it's clear that some form of developing Zoroastrianism was being practiced by a large swath of the Iranian population and would become central to the great Persian or Iranian empires, such as the Achaemenids, the Parthians, and the Sasanians. So to move on chronologically then, let's talk about the famous Persian Empire, the Achaemenids. Did the Achaemenids practice Zoroastrianism? Well, the short answer is yes. We have to remember, and I can't this so much because it is important to remember, that Zoroastrianism was always evolving and changing. And at this relatively early stage, we can't think of Zoroastrianism as a uh, institutionalized religion with clearly delineated doctrines and borders. But when we look at the sources, both internal ones, such as documents or rock inscriptions, as well as outside sources, such as from the Greeks, we can clearly see that the Achaemenid rulers adhere to a version of that Avestan worldview that we mentioned earlier. Many names of royals and officials carry names related to Zoroastrian scriptures and ideas, and the emperors like Darius saw themselves as playing an important role in this cosmic drama of representing the wisdom and the authority of Ahura Mazda and Asha on Earth against its enemies. Mm. In the inscription at Bistun, Darius I makes clear his that's devotion you, to the god and what this means. Quote, so-called defeat the Iranians, the Mazda, convert to their religion. Ahura Mazda <laughs> has granted me the kingdom. And, quote, a great god is Ahura Mazda, who created this excellent thing which is seen, who created happiness for man, who set wisdom and capability down upon King Darius. King Darius says, by the grace of Ahura Mazda, I am of such a sort, I am a friend of the right, of wrong, I am not a friend. It is not my wish that the weak should have harm done him by the strong, nor is it my wish that the strong should have harm done him by the weak. The right, that is my desire, but the man who is a follower of the lie, I am no friend. In other words, he's clearly placing himself within the Avestan worldview and ethical framework. And this can be said to be true generally for the Achaemenids. In fact, we see in the Achaemenid period a few of the most prominent features of Zoroastrianism for the first time. So what did Zoroastrianism actually look like on the ground during this period? Well, if you're looking for a neat and simple-to-grasp answer, you won't find it here. In general, it seems that Zoroastrian worship, for the most part, took place outside, rather than in temples or other dedicated buildings. Worship was, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, directed at certain natural elements, such as fire, water, and wind, and rituals could be performed on mountaintops or other places in nature. As we saw, Ahura Mazda was still seen as the high god who creates and sustains the universe, but worship on the ground often focused on these other forces in the form of Ameshaspentas or Yazadas, the divine beings worthy of worship and who were associated with natural phenomena. As you probably know, one of the things most strongly associated with Zoroastrianism is a reverence for fire. 
And this starts to become visible for the first time here in the Achaemenid period, where fire, along with water, seems to have been a particularly strong focus of reverence. Fire, along with water, was seen as pure and represented the light of Ahuramaita and Asha, a, uh, a pure expression of that good aspect of the world that we are all to aim for in our lives. Many, including later Muslim critics, have often called Zoroastrians fire worshippers in a derogatory way. This thus needs to be clarified and nuanced. The fire is turned to as a symbol and expression of light, of goodness, and by extension, While we don't find any examples of fire temples in this period, which became so prominent in later periods, there are examples of sacred fires that were kept perpetually burning as an important part of ritual or worship in some way. Indeed, on rock carvings, one of the most prominent themes is often a three-part image of the king standing in front of a burning fire altar, and above both of them is the famous figure called the Fravashi, which we will return to later. In other words, two of the most prominent and famous symbols of Zoroastrianism have thus emerged, and this seems to have pointed to a kind of three-part uh, vision of authority in the world. Prominent and standing in front of a burning fire altar, and above both of them is the famous figure called the Fravashi, which we will return to later. In other words, two of the most prominent and famous symbols of Zoroastrianism have thus emerged, and this seems to have pointed to a kind of three-part uh, vision of authority in the world, right? The king represents Ahura Mazda in the world, his authority, and, and, and the, the sort of spreading of, of Asha in the world. The fire also represents a divinity and light and goodness and Asha in some way. And then the Fravashi above uh, also has a very significant uh, meaning and symbolism. Again, which we'll return to later because it's pretty complicated. Sometimes it's thought to represent the Horamas himself, but this isn't entirely sure. Uh, but these, these uh, three sort of symbols were very important at this time, and particularly the, the latter two, the fire and the Fravashi, has remained uh, sort of key uh, symbols for the religion till this very day. We are pretty sure that fire served a ritual function already at this time because there are mentions of something called atarvaksha, or guardians of fire, as some kind of important uh, functionaries in the religion. In general, it is also in the Achaemenid period that we also see the appearance of the main religious experts of Zoroastrianism, what we could call the, um, the Zoroastrian priests, which are called magi. These magi would become very famous across the ancient of Zoroastrian, important uh, functionaries in the religion. In general, it is also in the Achaemenid period that we also see the appearance of the main religious experts of Zoroastrianism, what we could call the, um, the Zoroastrian priests, which are called magi. These magi would become very famous across the ancient world, and among other things, magi, they, they probably from. show up in the Gospel of Matthew as the three yeah. magi or wise men that bring gifts to baby Jesus. It is also from the word Magi that we get terms yes, like sure. magic, as these figures became associated outside of Iran with things like astrology and different kinds of, you know, what we would refer to as magic, even if this wasn't always necessarily an accurate association. But the appearance of the Magi tells us some important things. We mentioned that, at least in the early Achaemenid period, worship took place outside and was directed at natural forces and the Yazadas that were associated with them. 
Well, these yazadas, or divine beings, really was a key aspect of religious practice in this period. Fire and water were important points of reverence, and these forces were associated with particular divine beings. And the two most popular in this period were Mithra and Anahita. Mithra was associated with the sun, and thus hungry with fire, even though fire often had a civilized something even higher.